Imagine walking down your street and finding a bustling celebration on your doorstep. Not for a holiday or a sporting event, just books. A party for the written word. From leather-scented literary tomes to brightly illustrated children's books, from major publishers to teeny indie presses, offering every genre of story in every medium your heart could desire, and bringing together a community of readers, authors, booksellers, and publishers alike. This was how the word on the street was imagined into being. A place where books by Canadian and Indigenous authors are championed in a free public festival right at the heart of our city, accessible to all. And for 30 years, that's exactly what happened. The word on the street, affectionately known as Watts, endured, rain or shine. But what you might not know is in April 2020, we weren't sure if there would be another Watts festival. Ever. My name is Rebecca Diem. I'm the digital strategy and communications manager for The Word on the Street. And I'm a speculative fiction author living here in Toronto. Or to Toronto. Treaty 13 territory. I've worked at Watts since 2019, the year we held our 30th anniversary celebration. And this is Read the North, a series exploring Canlit, brought to you by your friendly neighborhood book festival. When the pandemic struck, our team had some really difficult decisions to make. And a big part of those decisions was asking why this work matters. Is Watts essential? Who is it for? What's the point of a book festival in this day and age of technological disruption and fractured attention spans? Well, as we were exploring these questions, we decided to reach out to the community of folks who are essential to the festival each year. The publishers, the arts organizations, the bookstores, the authors— and most importantly, the readers. We asked what was important to them and what dreams they held for the future. And what we got in return was stories. Stories we tell about ourselves, the places we call home, and the people we call our neighbors. And ultimately, the story of Watts, a story that grows and evolves as each new voice adds their part. It's the story of us, and not just who we are or who we were, but who we aspire to be. So we're going to share that story with you. Over the course of this mini-series, we're going to dig into the why of Watts and how a 33-year-old literary institution can make it in the 21st century. But before we look to the future, first we got to look back. The inaugural Word on the Street took place on Queen Street West in 1990, and there'd never been anything like it before. A free book festival taking over multiple city blocks That was a totally novel idea. And it was also, as firsts often are, a lot of work. So clearly, a lot of people really believed that Toronto needed a book festival and were willing to work hard to make it happen. But like, why? Why did they think it mattered then? The nice thing is, even though 33 years can feel like a lifetime, I'll be 35 this June, 1990 isn't actually that long ago. So we didn't have to speculate. We just called up Carolyn Taylor, the festival's very first executive director. Can you tell me about when your involvement began 
Uh, were you part of the planning process or were you brought on to kind of lead the show with the with the first iteration of the festival? Sure. Um, there was definitely a group of deeply committed people to the idea of making writing and reading, reading in particular, uh, accessible to uh, Canadians and certainly within Toronto. Uh, deeply committed to that idea uh, and making it real before I was ever on the scene, for sure. And the job description that I responded to said that there was a deep desire amongst this group and a commitment to realize uh, a publicly accessible celebration of books, writing, and reading. So that was, uh, that was the extent of the vision that we had uh, when I started. And uh, one of our early board members, Blanche Van Ginkel, uh, who is an architect, and, you know, one of her contributions to the whole vision was this idea of Torontonians waking up one morning to the sight of a street that was very familiar to them, having been completely transformed. And uh, there is just something about that idea that was very captivating to me and I think to all of us. And so I think, you know, that's, that's part of what we really strove for. The General Assembly of the United Nations had declared that 1990 would be International Literacy Year, and the City of Toronto was looking for ways to mark the occasion. A brand new book festival seemed like a perfect way to do that. It's one of the reasons why literacy is an important component to the Word on the Street activities, such as providing free space to literacy organizations. And because you can't have the right to read without also having a high degree of literacy in your community. This is Sita Ram Kalawansing, who was helping to lead the city's plans for International Literacy Year. She also joined the Watts Advisory Board in 1990 and later became the chair of the National Board. And when I talk about literacy, I'm talking about low reading levels. I'm not talking about literary stuff, so that the notion of literacy is about adult illiteracy and difficulty with um, reading and with numeracy as well, which are important skills to have in terms of employment, in terms of life skills, in terms of the relationship between children and their parents, and the ability to be full participants uh, in the society. So the goal of promoting literacy just naturally became a central part of the festival's premise. And going hand-in-hand with that was this idea of bringing books and ideas into a public space that felt welcoming to all kinds of people. When I talked to Carolyn, she used the word accessibility no less than nine times. For sure, accessibility. I know I've mentioned that a lot, but, but you know, from the very beginning, that was really key. And I think back to, it was such, really honestly, an eye-opening experience for me because we were, uh, as I mentioned, working with um, a number of literacy organizations at the time too. And they, you know, they were really point blank about it and said, Carolyn, you know, we're living in a city where there are people who are intimidated to go into a bookstore. And that just really landed with me because my eyes were opened in that moment to something that hadn't really occurred to me. 
So the timing was right, and the goals were admirable. Even so, it was anything but smooth sailing. Basically, putting on a book festival is hard, especially when you're trying to do something that's never been done before. Here's Sita again. They recruited a number of people who would give credibility to the idea of closing down a major street in the city, which had never happened before, and which would also have involved rerouting the Queen Street streetcars, and I don't know to what extent that had ever happened before, if it had ever happened. So it was a very um, important kind of initiative in the city's history. It also helped that this entire project was led by Bill Kilborn, who had been a former city councilor, historian, you know, city activist going back forever. I can say that Bill Kilborn was wonderful. He was absolutely a visionary. He was a real character. And uh, what I found so interesting about Bill was that uh, certainly he was a great leader. He wasn't afraid to think outside of the box. He wasn't afraid of the messiness of first-time projects. He really understood that, uh, which was a real gift to those of us on the staff, I must say. And uh, probably most interestingly, he was not afraid to challenge the system. And was he a, he was the city councillor at the time? He was the city councillor at the time, yeah. And I'll, I'll share a story. I'm not sure I should share this or not, but I will. Absolutely um, should. So uh, we were down to the wire and we did not have our street occupation permit yet for the first word on the street festival, but we had everything else lined up. We had all of the booths rented. We had all of the artists programmed to come and speak. We had all of the literacy organizations signed up to be there, uh, magazine publishers and so on. And we still didn't have our street occupation permit. So Bill said, well, we'll just take no news as good news. And we'll go ahead with our media release. And until we hear differently, this is happening, basically is what it came down to. And about three and a half minutes before our media release, uh, an event, our media launch, was to happen, the councillor arrived with the street occupation permit in hand, and we announced the first ever Bird on the Street Festival. <laughs> so, so I have to say now, I think I would be pulling my hair out, but really, that was Bill. Anecdotally, when we were waiting for location approval from the city for this year, I might have taken some inspiration from the Bill Kilburn playbook. Sorry, Sandro, and thank you. <laughs> but I digress. Back in 1990, that wasn't the only hiccup they ran into. The festival's dream of making the literary world accessible to the masses was also being met with a bit of skepticism from some surprising places. It took many, many conversations to bring some of the publishing community on side and to get them to trust in the value of this event. Why do you think that was? Like, what was the concern? Gosh, I guess I'll just say it. I think there was kind of a highbrow um, conviction in where the literary uh, art form sat in Toronto. And this idea of turning it into some sort of street frolic 
was not appealing to some members of the publishing community. But then, you know, I, again, here, I have to give credit where credit is due. Avi Bennett at McClellan and Stewart got on side and it was Avi Bennett who was really able to kind of turn a corner and, you know, he was very clear about some of the results and impact that he wanted to see. But, you know, as we continued to talk and continued to collaborate, he really, really got behind it and was really instrumental, I think, in convincing others in the publishing community to get behind it. There's no question that through the board of directors that we had, there were some strong, strong connections there into the publishing community as well. Um, but, but it was a sell, for sure. The days before the festival were anxious ones. The team had worked hard, but ultimately, who knew how it would go? I mean, we all do now, given that you're listening to this Watts-produced show in 2022, 33 years later. You can guess that it was successful. But even then, no one could have predicted just how successful. Yeah. You know, in the very first year, I have to say it was surprise, I think. It was joy. For those of us on the team and the board, there definitely was shock because we had worked so hard on this and you put it out there, but it's not like a ticketed event where you have a pretty good sense of who's going to show up. And it was packed. So we, you know, we quickly realized that we were, we, we were onto something that Toronto was hungry for. And then I think also for the, the, um, authors, the booksellers, the publishers, the micropress and so on. I think there was relief. You know, they had trusted in us. We had shared this with them. We needed them and they had invested, you know, through their exhibit space and, you know, it paid off for them. And I don't mean just paid off in financial terms, but I mean, in terms of their Um, ability to really connect with a wider public. So I think, you know, that we were able to really live up to the aspirations that we had promised. Science fiction novelist Cory Doctorow was at that first word on the street, working the tent of his then-employer, Baca Books. It was just very crowded. I mean, clearly, I think the organizers were very surprised because it was was like a cattle car on Queen Street. Like, there was, you couldn't turn around. And I, you know, to this day, I don't know why, but it, it just was this thing that just, I guess it tapped into something that was latent in the Canadian psyche uh, or the Toronto psyche. You know, we wanted a, we wanted a book fair. 30 odd years later, Sita reflects on the impact of bringing the festival to Toronto. Well, I think uh, what it did do is that it introduced the public at large to authors in a way in which they probably would not have gone. I mean, mean, it's a very kind of elite activity to go to an author's reading. Many people would probably not find themselves comfortable there if they did not view themselves as being part of the literary community. But when you have this great big free public festival, you're also saying that, you know, you too can be part of this, and it broadens the audience for those authors. 
In many ways, the word on the street has achieved a lot of the goals it set out with. It's made reading more accessible to the general public. It broadened the conversation and created a more inclusive community. But also, a lot has changed since 1990. On a really Watts-specific level, by 2004, the festival had grown so big it just no longer fit on Queen Street West. It's changed locations a few times, taking place at Queen's Park, Harborfront Centre, and even, in the last couple of years, online. Then, on a much broader level, the world has changed a lot too. And I think that's actually too broad. So here's Cory Doctorow with some specifics. Well, you know, back in 1990, we had to walk uphill in the snow in both directions to bring in our returns. Okay, but actually. So... A signal difference between 1990 and now, everywhere, and especially in bookselling and very visibly on Queen Street, was that economically we were in a much more diverse place. Income inequality was not what it was, was not what it is today, uh, and retail was still largely separate. There were some large firms, but small and medium-sized enterprises, independent shops, independent publishers were the order of the day. There were lots of different distributors. There were um, lots of uh, different uh, book fairs and lots of different stores. Uh, Queen Street had four or five great bookstores. It was a destination for readers. You could go and you could walk up and down it. Um, there wasn't just one giant national chain. There were two or three. And certainly that one national giant chain didn't own the single national giant distributor as well. The choice of one book buyer about what to carry on the shelf, or one editor about what to buy, or indeed one major retail conglomerate's owner's decision about what stores would be in what parts of the city made for a much broader and more surprising and often more delightful world. It was a time when workers had more worker power and writers had more writer power because you could shop your work to more than one place. Publishing workers had more power. If you didn't get along with your boss, you could go work somewhere else. These changes have impacted every aspect of Canlit, and we're going to go way more in depth on that in future episodes. But there are also ways in which the 1990s weren't a more delightful world. The Canlit community's understanding of what an accessible, inclusive, and welcoming book festival is has changed drastically over the last 33 years in ways that are long overdue. If those are still the goals of the festival, well, the goalposts have moved in really necessary ways. And to keep the sports metaphor going, if you ask almost anyone in Canlit who is currently moving the goalposts the most and yet still managing to score consistent touchdowns, they'll probably point you to Jail Richardson. My name is J.L. Richardson, and I am the executive director for the Fold Foundation, or the Festival of Literary Diversity. Very nice. And you're an author, too, aren't you? I'm also an author. I should say that. I don't know why I forget that part. But yes, I also write books. <laughs> Incidentally, J.L.'s first book is about her father, who was a football player. She could probably tell me everything wrong with that metaphor. But what I really wanted to ask her about was her experience running one of, if not the most, diverse lit festivals in the country. It's interesting because I think I had gone to literary festivals and because as a Black woman, I would go to literary festivals and I would love them and I would have fun, but I would also feel very isolated, <laughs> feel very alone. Uh, I was usually one of the youngest at the time. I was also definitely like the only person of color or one of like a very, very small number and there's a sense that you're 
invading someone else's space or you're not welcome when that happens. And so I knew from from personal experience that I wanted to create something that would show the representation on stage that would make people feel more welcome. This desire led to the creation of the Festival of Literary Diversity, or The Fold. The very first festival took place in Brampton in 2016. I mean, it sounds it sounds basic to me, but it also seems profound to other people from from communities like white communities and able-bodied communities that I guess don't think about this, that when you have more range on stage, you will have more range in your audience. It's it's a mathematical equation that always works out, frankly. You know, when we started Fold, um, we just put different people on stage and different kinds of people showed up to the event. And I think that publishing is so white, it's so able-bodied, it's so straight that so often I think they've been surrounded by themselves for so long that they don't even realize that people are missing. And then when they realize people are missing, it seems very confusing to them how to solve it, but it's actually not that challenging. And, um, I think doing it mindfully and thoughtfully, probably the biggest challenge is that when you don't have that representation in your organization, it becomes very difficult to understand how to do it and how to do it right. From the start, the team that puts on the fold has been just as diverse as the authors their festival highlights. When they realize people are missing, they've got a team full of people who know how to solve it. And by building something new, they've been able to create an event that clearly fills in all the gaps in the canlit landscape that, to them, were incredibly obvious. While building the fold from the ground up certainly hasn't been easy, Jail noted that it did present a blank slate. They didn't have to worry about expectations or tradition or pleasing longtime attendees. They were able to create exactly the festival they wanted from the start. And other festivals, including ours, have work to do if they want to catch up. There's a phrase my mom used to use all the time, and I say it so often I'm getting sick of hearing myself say it, but it's that big ships turn slowly. And I think publishing is a big ship that's turning slowly. And sometimes I'm not sure it's turning at all. (laughs) Sometimes I think like the gas is just off. But for us, building something like Fold, where there wasn't a festival that centered, that prioritized that. There were other festivals that had different kinds of authors for sure. But for us, it was like the number one priority. It's where we begin. It's how we function with everything. And I think for us, building it from scratch was actually way easier than having a big ship that has to make a big turn. One of the many things that's instructive about The Fold is the way it's been embraced by the community. I guess there are lots of ways to interpret this, but I think the clearest is people have been hungry for this kind of event in the same way that Torontonians in 1990 were hungry for the original word on the street, for a literary event that reflects the diversity of the residents who share this space we call home. Watts operates on Treaty 13 territory, subject to the Dish with One Spoon Wampum Belt Covenant, an agreement to share the resources around the Great Lakes in peace. This includes Indigenous nations who have stewarded the land for tens of thousands of years, and it includes new Canadians choosing to make this place their home today. Canlit is just finally figuring out how to make space for everyone's stories. 
Andrew Gogia has been a bookseller in Toronto for more than 25 years, and she was recently awarded the Writers' Union of Canada's 2022 Freedom to Read Award. Over the decades she's worked in the industry, she's seen a big evolution in who and what gets published. You know, one of the other things, when you think of what it means, right, freedom to read, we've had conversations in the last several years in CanLit about diversity, right? And I can recall several conversations I would have with writers when I was at the women's bookstore in the late 90s and early 2000s, who I can't name because these were confidential conversations, who would say to me, you know, I can't write what I want to write and get it published. Because even though Canlit was starting to publish certain writers, those writers had to write in a certain way, right? There was still a big push for exotification, right? They wanted writers to talk about the other countries and the traumas that they had been through. They didn't want to talk about the complexities of life here, about the complexities around race, about life here. And so even though you could see a handful of writers of colors being published, I knew by talking to them and also by seeing what was being published by the big presses, there still wasn't the full range and complexity of what was out there. I don't think you could have seen David Cheriandi's brother be published 20 years ago, right? Mm -hmm. In terms of how he talks about the interiority of black men in Scarborough. That's not a book that you could have had published with the editors and the publishing houses the way they were. Nick Mount, an English professor at the University of Toronto, was actually at that launch event for Brother when it first came out in September 2017. And the feeling in that room was just incredible. Like, the, you know, it was a, first of all, it was a very large crowd of people. Uh, it was a very diverse crowd of people, much more diverse. I, I skipped the euphemism. It was a blacker group of people than I'm used to seeing at a standard Toronto literary launch. And the energy level was high and people were excited and there were young people in the room, you know, people without white hair, people who still had hair, you know, and so and it was it was beautiful. It was really quite something to see. If you look at what's being published today, you can see so much more of the complexity that Anju is talking about. The body of work being published is richer and more diverse, but obviously there's still so much progress that has yet to be made. And to JL's point, big shifts turn slowly. At what point is it too slow? Certainly as an employee of the Word on the Street Festival, and as an author and a devoted bookworm, I want our festival to keep evolving for the better. I think we have a part to play in helping push Canlit towards the best version of itself. And through this series, I talked to so many interesting, thoughtful, and really smart people about how we can navigate these choppy waters to get there. I hope you'll keep tuning in to hear what they have to say. But before we wrap this episode up, I think it's worth taking a second to acknowledge one other reason that book festivals exist, why we care about them, why they matter. Well, they're just really fun. I mean, I always joke when people, so I'm, I'm not part of like a book family. Like my family reads a lot of books, but like we're sports people, right? So when I am the, the lone wolf, that's like deeply ingrained in the arts. And so when I have to explain to my family or other people, what, what a book festival is, I'm like, it's a concert for book people. You know, it's, it's our gathering where we like cheer and raw and do whatever we have to do. Um, and so I think what makes book festivals so fun for book lovers is same what I was talking about for authors. I think reading is a very isolated activity. 
I think sometimes, you know, great readers are always looking for the next great book. And going to literary festivals is so exciting because you get to find new authors and new books. And when you know something about the background of a book, it's way more fun to read. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, do you have any fun memories of attending a Word on the Street festival? I cannot wait to be back at Word on the Street. And for me, there are multiple perspectives of enjoyment. I love like sneaking past a panel and like listening casually to a conversation that's just so good. You you then can't go anywhere else. Um, and that's happened a few times at Word on the Streets. You can stumble across conversations that you didn't know about that are just so profound. And you can see the crowd like gathering because they know it too. And then I love being a vendor too. We've had a booth for Fold the last few times and we've sold t-shirts and it's been this hot sticky day, (laughs) but also like just wildly enjoyable to just see so many people from the industry together, authors from across the country gathering. It's just, I mean, it's, it's an energy. I mean, it's funny word on the street is the most like an actual concert vibe, uh, you know, in terms of all the festival, like an indie concert. That's what, that's what word on the street feels like. And it's so fun. I might be a bit biased, but the original board was really onto something, a party for books. Who wouldn't want to go? One of my favorite parts of producing this series was hearing people's memories of Watts, especially the early festivals. And here's Carolyn Taylor reflecting on what it felt like to attend some of those very first parties. I mean, festivals. I was also wondering if we could get, um, if you could describe for people who are listening to this who may not have been to the festival before, what you might see or hear or experience, like if you are just like walking into a word on the street festival? Mm. Well, I would say that, um, you know, certainly in the Queen Street days, what you would walk into is an environment and an experience of celebration. And I think that you would find it very, very easy to wind away the day in uh, just the joy of discovering the written word books, learning more about the Canadian publishing scene as well, I would say, and uh, leave having had a wonderful experience in an environment in your city that if you went back the next day would be vastly different and you would have to wait for a whole other year to have that experience again. This year, it's been almost three whole years since anyone's had that Watts experience. On the streets, with the community. But in case you missed it, the wait is over. The word on the street is returning to Queen's Park this June 11th and 12th for two glorious days of celebration. We can't wait. But before we get there, we've got some more stories to share. How the Word on the Street came to be is just one chapter of the larger Canlet story. And over the next few weeks, we hope you'll join us in discovering more. Thanks for tuning in to this very first episode of Read the North. The show is hosted by me, Rebecca Diem, and produced and edited by Quentin Bradshaw. Theme music and scoring are by James Ellerkamp. I'd like to give another shout out to our friends at the wonderful Festival of Literary Diversity. The 2022 edition just took place this past week, but they run awesome programming all year long, including a kids' festival in November. Check them out at thefoldcanada.org. 
To keep up with the word on the street and all the latest festival news, be sure to give us a follow on Instagram and Twitter at TorontoWOTS. And check out the full festival lineup at toronto.thewordonthestreet.ca. This series is a co-production of The Word on the Street Toronto and CJRU 1280 AM and was made possible by the Community Radio Fund of Canada. For more CGRU programming, you can tune in and listen live at cgru.ca. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in a week with another episode. Time for Toronto's biggest book and magazine fair, The Word on the Street, a four-block stage where the printed word comes to life. I'm leaving you, Scarlet. Red, my God. Come on, how does it end? Wait a second. You just keep signing off. I'll read you the last line in the book. Anne of Green Gables. Yes, that's right. Canadian literature. And we're just reading um, a rabbit story. The Word on the Street, Sunday, September 25th. See that weekend's Toronto star for the official guide. Listen to CHFI and watch City TV for details.